Hi, hello. Welcome. Welcome everyone to our podcast. Leave a message. I'm Carrie. This is Janet. You know us. Let's see. First and foremost, you know, Mason thinks we need to change the name because there are so many other podcasts called Leave a Message. I don't feel like we need to. Well, I've already ordered the stickers. Oh. So. I think once we get approved and go live on Apple Podcast as this, I think then we'll be legitimate. His concern was just that people weren't able to find it easily, which who knows. But yeah. you can find it on Spotify easily. You can find it, you know, I post it on my social media pages. I'll make it its own social media stuff eventually once we get some more episodes. It's not like we have a plan. No, heck no. No, no. <laughs> no. This is not a planned endeavor. It's just Mm-mm. for fun. Just un- unfolding. Just for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I was thinking we could do today is... Yeah. I feel like it's your turn on the hot seat. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yep, I know. Ooh, We're ooh. both pretty private people, but turnabout is fair play. That is and fair. And yeah. I think an interesting story to follow would be what happened after we saw each other at Dr. Clean. After? What happened for you? We've gone through what happened for me. What happened for you? So this would be 92-ish. Oh. Well, after that, I mean, I met, you know, my son's father pretty shortly after that, I believe. Must have been, must have been 92, 93, because then Mason was born in 94. Mm-hmm. So I think I was, I think I was probably going to outpatient treatment and then I was living with my mom and I had a part-time job and I met Mason's dad and he talked me into moving in with him even though I I knew I didn't want to I said to him you know I I won't be able to pay my own way I don't I won't be able to pay half of the bills and he talked me into it anyway and then Shortly thereafter, I think just a few months later, I don't really remember how long I lived with him or how long before I got pregnant, but he went on a fishing trip and I took a pregnancy test while he was gone and found out I was pregnant. And he came home from the trip and told me that he was getting resentful towards me for not paying my half of the Mm -hmm. rent and the bills. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I said, Mm -hmm. by the way, I'm also pregnant and I'm going to go ahead and move out. So... That's what happened, pretty mm-hmm. much with that. And then I got a job as a nanny. Yeah, I remember. I, I remember was a nanny you. for yeah. my friend's cousin while I was pregnant. And then after Mason was born, we moved in with them. And I think, similar, you know, when you were talking about your experience of being a new mom and being young and drifting away from recovery, the same thing happened to me. And mm-hmm. I ended up just starting to use again mm-hmm. gradually. And then in 94... What was, it, the, what was the, like, week before you used, like, like what happened? Like, how does one go from I'm a nanny with the son to mm-hmm. I'm injecting heroin? I can't, I can't remember specifically, but I do know that when I had my son, it's like I was pretty 
confident and comfortable throughout my whole pregnancy. And then I remember being in the hospital and being in labor and I was induced and I had some a bunch of friends in the hospital room with me. You weren't available because you were giving, giving birth across <laughs> town. Um, and I felt fine in the hospital even. And my friends were trying to get a hold of Mason's dad and they couldn't get a hold of him. Back in the olden days and the 90s, there weren't cell phones. And so... He, did, he wasn't living in Seattle proper at that time, and nobody knew how to get a hold of him. So they were calling his friends. You know, they were calling around. They probably called Steve or, you know, who knows, like just calling around trying to let him know that I was in the hospital. And he showed up the next day after Mason was born, and he heard through the grapevine, unfortunately, you know, that Mason had been born. And so he showed up to the hospital, let's just say not in a kind, loving mood, and it went poorly. I think we were both just very overwhelmed. We were young. Mm -hmm. You know, I was mm -hmm. 25, 26. He was, I don't know, a few years older. It was just a really hard time for mm -hmm. me. And then my dear, our dear friend Sarah drove Mason and I home from the hospital and just dropped us off. I was living in an apartment by myself on Capitol Hill in a building where some other people in recovery lived. And she said it was so terrifying dropping me off with this little infant. And I mean, I was terrified too. I was, mm -hmm. I have this feeling, I had it not to compare my child to having a puppy, but being 100% responsible, like solely responsible for another sentient being's well-being has always been very um, intense, a very intense feeling for mm -hmm. me where... I had I knew I knew it was happening when we got our puppy <laughs> because it felt familiar, mm -hmm. and I knew that I was going to need to, you know, take a look at it, to bring it up and take a look at it. And I think that a few months ago, the dog and I went and spent a couple months in California together, and I felt it heavily at that time driving down there with him and having to really know when he needed to go to the bathroom and not leave mm -hmm. him at home alone for very long. And and I only at that time. With the puppy, did I identify, like, wow, this is how I felt when I was a new mom, but exacerbated or, like, yeah, right. accentuated by a million of just, like, right. I have this Well, and I, I would say, too, like, you're 20 years wiser than you were then. Oh, God bless you. Yeah, 20. Yeah, like, <laughs> 30. Um, <laughs> so, I just, the feelings of fear, just, like, sheer terror, essentially, mm -hmm. of being alone taking care of an infant and not being on good terms with his dad mm -hmm. and just feeling terrified. I think I was just so emotionally overwhelmed that I needed relief. You know, mm -hmm. it was just too intense and I was too afraid and it was too scary. And, and you, did, you weren't really going to AA? You weren't going to meetings? And we went to NA back then. NA, right, right. No, I, I think I did. I think, I yeah. mean, I know that we both went the whole time we were pregnant. I remember being the secretary yeah. of a meeting the whole, like, for yeah. a lot while I was pregnant. And then I would bring Mason as an infant and it was great because everybody always wanted to hold him and walk around with him and stuff. So I felt like I could get a break. Mm -hmm. And for an hour and just sit there in peace I mean, I was I was going, but I I wasn't doing anything else. I mean, I wasn't doing the steps or actively sponsoring anyone or anything. Yeah. I mean, did your did your parents help out? Oh, for sure, for yeah. sure. My mom yeah. was hands on every day, anything yeah. I needed at all times. She was great back then. She was probably 
If I was 26 when he was born, she was only 47. You know, she mm-hmm. was young. So she was very hands-on. And we lived close together. She would come over whenever I needed her. He and I actually went and lived at her house the first couple of weeks after mm-hmm. he was born because I was just too overwhelmed. And that would be a pattern throughout his life until he was five when I really got sober for this last time. But my mom was always there for Mason and would always take him and... She had a lot of, you know, she had a lot of concern for our well-being, for sure. And she was mm-hmm. definitely a saving a life force in his life, yeah. always. My Thanks dad, too. Yeah, yeah, my dad, too, for sure. I mean, my dad took Mason overnight. and My dad was single at the time. Mason, he took Mason overnight when he was six months old. Hmm. Like, he just loved him that much. And Isn't both of my brothers... Isn't it funny to see how, like, more adept our parents were at our kids <laughs> yeah. than they were at us? Yeah. Uh, both of my bro- neither one of my brothers had kids at that time either. So Mason was really just, like, the golden child, the first mm-hmm. baby in our family and in his dad's family. So he got the benefit of also having everyone still be really young. You're young enough, all the grandparents, you know, to be really hands-on. And... Yeah, I mean, it's just such a terrible, it's such a hard time to think about because I really see that as, I just wish, I wish it could have been different, not because I feel like Mason remembers any of it or has really suffered super deeply, but just because, like you said, like knowing what I know now and just not being, I mean, I was physically with him, but I just mm-hmm. emotionally was just so checked out and dis- yeah. disassociated and terrified. Yeah. So now when I see young, young women, you know, I have a special place in my heart for women in recovery, women with kids in recovery. Yeah, same. Because I think we carry our own special set of guilt and shame that comes mm-hmm. with being a mom that doesn't just magically overcome addiction the second we find out we're pregnant, you know. Right. And I think society kind of has that expectation of just like, how could you do this? You're a mom. Right. Right. I don't know if men. I don't know if men have that same stigma or not. I'm not a man, so I don't know. Right. But seems like we get it a little bit more harshly. It seems like yeah. men are expected to kind of just bail out and that's Well, the, yeah, go out for the pack of cigarettes and never come back, right? right. Like that's yeah. kind of a story about men, not of women. Mhm. Yeah. And then so I had started using a little bit when Mason was a baby and I left the job as a nanny. It was kind of unspoken but everybody knew that I was Mm -hmm. sort of falling apart and then Kurt died you know Kurt committed suicide or ended his own life and I went to his I went to his funeral and I went to Courtney's house after the funeral and I and I went and I was sober that day and I had the conscious thought of just like this is the last day I'm gonna be sober I Hmm. can't like it was a choice really painful really really painful yeah and I just didn't have the, the the container. My container wasn't strong enough to... Mason was eight months old, you know. I was yeah. still trying to keep my shit together and trying to not use. But, you know, just the terror of being a mom and then yeah. just the sadness of, of his... Of Kurt's situation, I just needed relief. And would I you, just... I would imagine that you related to my experience on the 
porch where I have a thought that crosses my mind where this is this is the perfect reason? Did you have anything like that of like, oh, oh. this is perfect? Yeah, this I mean, it kind was of. It was my reason. perfect reason. I right. didn't care if anyone else thought that I was justified and right, right. going over the edge because of it. But I, ju- I justified it to myself perfectly yeah. well. And yeah. in my mind at that time, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to give up my child and qu- quit my life. I was just going to be high. Right. It's not like I'm going to stop being a mom or I'm going to abandon my kid. But that's right. what happened eventually, right. of course. Right. So. And then it was just a series of, you know, trying, 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 and off and on, off and on, off and on, off and on. And then I went to treatment for a year in 1995. What's, tell us a story about the off and on, off and on, off and on. I mean, it's so jumbled up. You know, the lifespan integration work that I did in trauma therapy, Mm -hmm. I think a really powerful part of it was like putting things as best as I could in chronological order Mm -hmm. right like it was like stringing beads on a string of like getting the timeline of when things happened because Mm -hmm. I think when you have as much I don't know I don't always want to call it trauma but like as much action as we've had in our life right like highs and lows (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) right it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to do a chronological timeline It is. And I mean, I can get it together as much as that. Like, Kurt dies. And I know those dates because I can Google them. Right, yeah. They're very... And I know Mason was a baby when I took him. I didn't take him to the funeral, but I took him over to Courtney's house afterwards. And I know he was eight months old. And he... And... What was the state of your and Kurt's relationship at his passing? Mm. Well, I... So he gave me a trip to New York to see his band Nirvana on Saturday Night Live the first time they were on Saturday Night Live which I believe was January of 1992 and the reason he gave me that as a gift my Christmas gift was because I had a big crush on Keanu Reeves mm-hmm. I mean who doesn't I still do right? yeah. who doesn't really? I still do but it's an, even intensified because he has his own motorcycle company mm-hmm. he just um, seems like such a good person too I think he's I just hope, such a good person I know his motorcycles are incredibly beautiful state-of-the-art like super expensive it's called arch i'm super into motorcycles so so back then nirvana was starting to get pretty big and kurt would he would taunt me after nirvana shows in la or san francisco or something he would call me after the show and say oh keanu was backstage after the show do you want me to get his autograph for you and i was just like fuck you don't (laughs) fuck off (laughs) So it was cute when he gave me that as a gift because it was just really sweet. Did you get to meet Keanu? Well, I think he also, he had, I think his agenda was also, he wanted his mom to go, but she hadn't traveled Mm. and wanted someone to be with her. And I knew his mom. So we went together. His mom and I flew together. We stayed in the same hotel room (laughs) Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. New York City. So we get there, and his mom, Wendy, and I go down to Kurt and Courtney's room in our hotel, beautiful five-star hotel, the Crown Plaza. And and you're not sober at this time? Oh, God, no. No, no. Very, very not sober. Very not sober, yeah. And this was in 92, January of 92. I think that's right. I could Google it, but I won't. So... 
it always felt like 91 to me, but I think it was because it was January. It was the first month of 92. So we go down to their room and Kurt says to me, oh, I have some bad news. Keanu's not here. And I said, again, fuck you. Not funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not cool. I mean, I curated my outfits down to the fucking... <laughs> Do you remember what you were wearing? In general, yeah. Yeah, what was it? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. What was it? I mean, I was wearing, you know, like, just docks and jeans and, you know, mm-hmm. baby doll dresses, shit like that. Mm-hmm. So, he convinced me finally that it was true. Keanu wasn't there. So, he was pretty bummed, you know. He was pretty bummed, and we just were on a mission so we got there like a week before the show was taping and Nirvana had a bunch of stuff to do they had to go do a bunch of stuff at MTV and they had to do a bunch of interviews and then there's rehearsals for Saturday Night Live and so I just I mean I ditched I ditched Wendy pretty early on I think (laughs) (laughs) I think Dave's Dave Grohl's mom and his sister I think showed up so they kind of took over with the Wendy stuff and actually wanted to probably do fun New York things instead of walk around in Alphabet City trying to buy heroin on the streets right and we you know Courtney and I went on a couple shopping trips and stuff and I think that's when Hole was trying to sign a record deal also so she was in doing some negotiating and stuff and we just that's it so so a week in New York of doing that and really picking my face like I just Mm. remember I mean I had good concealer and good makeup and stuff but I must have just looked like I had chicken pox on my face I mean it was just now why were you picking your face it's because I was real high it was my go-to activity go go hand in hand sure and then you know it was a bummer because so after the show or maybe during the show everyone like the whole sonic youth camp was all there because they knew kurt and courtney and i had known them through mark before and so it was kind of it was a time when the camps in the nirvana camp there were it was starting to separate into two camps the good people and the bad people and i was mm-hmm. in the bad people camp there was only three people in that camp and it was me and kurt and courtney Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, and I think in the in that orb of people, that orbit of people, people, you know, I heard at that time and since then that it was my fault that that Fun Bunny was strung out and that mm-hmm. it was my fault he had become a junkie and that was not true. So I was mm-hmm. kind of being treated that way in yeah. that I felt I had, at, at I the had time. some of that blowback too. Sure, yeah. Like, I think that falls on. Even though it's the exact opposite. But I believe I would have probably run into it at some time, no matter who it was. I really don't fault Fun Bunny for that in any way. Of course not, right. I've I've worked through it. And what else? I mean, there's other stuff that happened in New York for sure, but I'll save that for the book. So So I come back from New York and... I was living at my mom's at that time and and I get a call from Courtney and she says that Kurt's really upset with me because I said something to his mother that was offensive to him. Something insulting about his relationship with Courtney, which I actually truly did not say. Like, I I was always on their side, you know, and I always felt like whatever it's true for Kurt, I'm going to back him up. He's in love. It, it's a real relationship. They are in love and it's it's real and they're they're doing it and she's not I mean I knew her in a different kind of way Courtney and 
I understood why he was in love with her. She was a fascinating human being. She's brilliant and fascinating and talented. And what sign is Courtney? Leo. Mm, yeah, that's what I would have guessed. Probably. Or is she a Cancer? She's a summer. She's summer. She's July. God, she might be. She's July or August, I believe. And I think Francis is August also. I think her Francis's birthday was just the other day. So Courtney calls me and kind of creates a fight between Kurt and I. And I said, can I talk to Kurt? Put Kurt on the phone. And she said, what I can't was talk. The, what was the fight? Just that he was upset that I had said something regarding their relationship to his mm -hmm. mom at some mm -hmm. point on this trip, which mm -hmm. didn't actually happen. And I don't even know. And so Courtney said, well, you should call Wendy and straighten it out. And I said, I don't think so. Let me talk to Kurt. I'm going to straighten it out with Kurt. And she wouldn't let me talk to him on the phone. And I never spoke to him again, sadly. So I got, I got clean after that. And I knew that if I was around them or tried to mend our relationship or if I was around them that I was going to use. And so mm -hmm. I just steered clear and I just figured we would all reunite sometime later in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, my brother was still around them and I knew that Kurt was asking about me and I would ask my brother about Kurt and I just figured, you know, this is just a time in our life when we're going to not be in contact. But they just were down the street for me. You know, they lived down in Madison Park slash, you know, Madrona and I was a nanny in Madison Park and I would actually meet up with their nanny and my friend Patty, who was the drummer in Hole, was dating their nanny. And I would, I was in touch with Patty, and I would take Mason and go meet up with them and Francis in the park, like in between mm -hmm. our houses. So mm -hmm. I felt connected to him still until. Did you think that he would, that he would ever get clean? <sighs> uh, I mean, kind of. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I didn't think that he wouldn't. I mean. Yeah. When he and I were together, not together romantically, when we were yeah. hanging out together, he would often say that he wanted to, well, he always wanted to be in disguise. He wanted to be able to still have a total anonymity while famous and be able to move about freely and not have to talk to people all the time. And so mm -hmm. he'd always talk to me about making disguises, like about what kind of hair we could do on him and just like fake <laughs> mustache or whatever shit. I mean... Mm -hmm. Fake mustache is a theme in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. And then, you know, when they started getting bigger and bigger, I would say things to him like, you know, you can just leave. Go, go live in a castle in Scotland for a year and paint. Like, you don't mm -hmm. have to continue to participate in this if you're going to sacrifice your, your soul. You know, you don't have to sell your soul for this shit. I think he was probably getting a different message from the people that were making money off him, his management, mm -hmm. his record label, and perhaps his wife. I'm not sure. But I think she I think she did want him to get clean and be healthier and be a good dad and all that stuff after Francis was born. I don't think he felt any of those people had the authority to tell him what to do. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, we all know, we know that. Like, especially, you know, for him to have that much money, I think... Same with Lane, you know, like, well, I'm not, I'm just going to the bank, to the ATM. Like, what do you care if I'm, it's my money. Right. right. Like, like, it's about the money. Like, that's right. the reason people want you to stop. So, coincidentally, I'm sitting at the people's house that I'm a nanny for, and all of a sudden, one day, out of nowhere, for no particular reason, I'm just overwhelmed with a wave of 
you should call Kurt today. And I was like, I think I can. I'm not afraid to call. And I feel pretty solid in my life and my recovery and my whatever. I don't feel like they can hurt me or they can. So I start calling his house and leaving a message on his recorder, whatever they're called, Mm -hmm. voice answering machine. Answering machine. Mm -hmm. An answering machine. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Courtney. It's Carrie. Just calling to say hi. I hope you guys are well. I'm I'm a nanny up the street, you know. And later that day, I call again. No answer. Leave another message. Hey, it's Carrie. Call me back. Here's my phone number, you know, back in the landline times. And I can't remember if it was that same day, if it was the next day, I called Kurt's best friend, Dylan, Mm -hmm. who I also hadn't spoken to for, I mean, it was probably a year by this time, right? And I called Dylan and he answers. And I say, hey, just been trying to get a hold of Kurt. You know, have you seen him lately? How's he doing? And Dylan's just like, you know, and then that's when Dylan told me that he was missing and they were trying to find him. And he thought it was really suspicious that I happened to call that day and that I called him and started kind of being accusatory of like it was a fishing expedition that Kurt put me up to calling them to see if they were on his trail. Right. So I inadvertently got sucked in to that situation. That tension might be what I miss the least, right? Like, that's what I'm happiest to be farthest away from in recovery is that kind of tension of, like, everybody is potentially a snitch or, (laughs) like, against you. Like, you're at the trap house and somebody's phone goes missing and nobody can leave until you find, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. deal. Like, oh, God, I I wouldn't wish that upon my worst. Yeah. So he kind of gave me the rundown of, I mean, he half believed me. I knew Dylan pretty well, and I don't think he thought I was a sinister person. I think what he thought was that Kurt would come to me Mm -hmm. and that I was with him or knew where he was. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. And I think it was the next day after that that it was on the news that they found a body at his house, but they weren't Mm -hmm. saying it was him. And I called So when you felt that wave, have you... Have you corroborated, like, when (laughs) on the timeline that is about after the intervention and when he was missing? Mm -hmm. Is it pretty close? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a, it was a wild, it it was a metaphysical, otherworldly experience. He was leaving. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he walked through you. Yeah, it's like he just tapped me on the shoulder and waved goodbye. I bet he did. Yeah. And the thing was on the news about them finding a body at his house and they wouldn't say it was him. And I called Susie and I just said, I, I know it's him. And she's just like, well, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Let's just, you know, let's just keep it together and we'll hold out hope. And it could just be some random occurrence of a worker or something. And But I knew the second they said it, I could just, I could just feel it. Well, like I felt al- it come out of the TV. Yeah. You'd already felt it. Yeah. And then I, some other stuff happened after, like in the days following that, that I felt, I felt that he was, I felt I could feel his spirit. I would go down and park at a, the beach across the street from his house and just, I would just look at the lake. And I knew that that was the last thing that he looked at mm. because I knew where he was when 
the incident ha- when it happened. And I would look out over the lake and I could really, f- you know, feel his presence. And then a few days later, maybe a week at the most, I went down there and I couldn't feel it anymore. And I just thought, oh, now he's gone. I mean, and at that same time, maybe that same night, or maybe it was the night before, I had a dream where he came to me in the dream and said, you have to let go. And I was holding, I was physically holding him by his coat and saying, I'm, I'm not ready. And he was, and he just laughed and said, well, it's not up to you. Mm-hmm. It was kind of me. It was kind of mean and sad and funny. Yeah, and it right. was a bunch of, it was a bunch of stuff. And I mean, I've had a handful of those kinds of dreams about him over the years, but not a ton, you know, mm-hmm. and but I've had a lot of other experiences where I have been made aware of his his interest in my well-being from wherever he is in the spirit world or whatever. I think yeah. you know you yeah. know all of those stories, and yeah. I believe mm-hmm. it. It's it's too accurate, and you know I've had s- situations that were just too accurate and too much information to have anyone be able to guess the in- the intricacies and the intimacies of our friendship and our mm-hmm. relationship and. Whether it's true or not, it, it gives me comfort, and it also gives me faith, and it also gives me motivation for some things, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we were 27 years old. You know, our birthdays were very close together. His birthday is the end of February, and mine's in April, so we always had birthdays very close together. And it was, you know, he the end of his life was in my birthday month. Mm-hmm. And so he... I think, is it is it April 9th? Well, I think it's the 4th mm. or the 8th. I mean, it might be it's, it might be different depending on what, what information yeah. you're going yeah. by. I mean, right. they know they found him not on the day of. So, right. and you know, they say that he and Lane died on the same day, different years, which I find that hard to believe. I think they're both, you know, they're both just guessing. I know forensics mm-hmm. are, can be accurate, right. but... You know, I went to, so I hadn't seen Courtney since the New York trip, and I went to the funeral for the family and friends, Mm -hmm. and that was the first time I saw Courtney in Francis after after he died, and then I was at that church down off Denny, you know, the, by the book, by the, it's like Mm -hmm. the Unity, Unity. whatever. Seattle Mm -hmm. Unity. Yeah, yeah. They just tore it down. It's gone now. Wow. It's so sad because that's where we did our kundalini stuff. And it was a neat Mm -hmm. church. A lot of stuff, a lot of cool stuff happened there. And so I went to the funeral at the church and it was, of course, very sad, very heart-wrenching. You know, Mm -hmm. little baby Frances was there and she pointed to a tapestry of Jesus on the wall in the chapel or whatever that big room is called where we were. And she thought it was Kurt. And she said, she was saying, daddy pointing at this picture of Hmm. Jesus, her tiny little voice. I mean, she was probably a couple years old. Yeah. She was little yiddle and just, you know, his management record label, like everybody just, and you know, I went with my brother and to really, to see my brother just break down and sob like that. And the heads of record labels and, you know, grown men and everybody just sobbing, just mm-hmm. guttural, just painful sadness all in one room was 
just it's so, it's so surreal as you know yeah. I mean it's just hard yeah. to even now talking about it it's just like what that's yeah. it's just so crazy and so I bumped into Courtney on the way out and we she invited us over to the house so I went home and she told me to go home and get my baby and bring him so we went to Kurt's house to his wake I suppose and that was the first time I saw his mom and his sisters and all of that stuff and I had little baby Mason with me and you know I used to tell Mason this story when he was a kid like you were at you know at Kurt's funeral essentially essentially mm-hmm. he didn't seem to care didn't really <laughs> he had no no attachment to yeah having we been have, there we have not much cool credit with our kids I don't think <laughs> no but it seems like lately he's been a little bit more into it. remember when he was over a couple of months ago and we were standing in the kitchen and he mm-hmm. goes you guys were my age when you had kids. And yeah. he, he's kind of starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And then he was like, wait, how old was Kurt when he died? And mm-hmm. so he's been kind of interested in that part of our legacy and history and stuff. And I, you know, I had the opportunity to speak to a medium. Probably, I think I was about like eight years clean by this time. And I didn't know this person at all. They knew nothing about me. And a bunch of people came through in the session. How a medium works is they can, you know, open this portal to the spirit world, and you can get messages, or people mm-hmm. can talk to you or have conversations or whatever. And a bunch of people came through, and then Kurt came through and said that he was said a bunch of stuff that was, again, very accurate, very personal. There's just no way anybody on earth would have known any of this. And mm-hmm. one thing he said to me was just like, you know, Francis is an equestrian, just like you, and you would love. the stuff she's doing with horses and I mean who the fuck would know that like what there's no medium that would know that and he said that he was gonna be Mason's bodhisattva so I've always just had this image in my mind of Mason moving through the world with Kurt on his shoulder Mm -hmm. you know you probably have this with your kids and their dad it's like He's got, you know, among probably a lot of other ancestors and other yeah, shits, right. you know. Because, I mean, our kids have been through some shit, you know. There have been yeah. moments where it's just like, fuck, I hope they don't have to go as deep into it as I did or we did or whatever. But they've had some surface level interactions into that world. And just like, it, maybe it was those guardian angels, you know, that steered, yeah. that directed them out of it or that yeah. saved their life long, kept them alive long enough that they could find their way. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. And again, it was just so comforting. And there was so much solace in in having that experience, that very otherworldly, like very wild. And that was, you know, so, so long ago. And that was really like, I've had maybe a couple other instances of knowing, of feelings of like knowingness or feeling him. And I think, you know, I've gotten, I've had a lot of like kind of shamanic healing experiences where he will kind of show up in that capacity as a presence. Like I don't necessarily see his face in a, Mm -hmm. but I can just feel him there or he'll, you know, send a message in that shamanic journeying mm-hmm. ca- capacity the, that comes through yeah the non-ordinary world in the non-ordinary world yeah i like i like the non-ordinary world a lot mm-hmm. better than the yeah. mundane a lot of times <laughs> i think that's why we like to explore that stuff and mm-hmm. e- but even that stuff 
I mean, even without the presence of him or the connection to him in that non-ordinary reality, I think that that's a very noble and a very satisfying, fulfilling way to seek Mm -hmm. self and contentment Mm -hmm. and guidance. Yeah, answers. Yeah. Answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's just such an authentic, ancient knowing of humanity yourself in that, that other world. and. The animals and the totems and the signs and then all that stuff is... I know for certain that, that I have had experiences in shamanic journeys. And I assume some, someday we'll probably talk about them. But where I was not going to solve it in this plane, right? Like I had problems I was not going to solve in this plane. Mm-hmm. But we take them into the non-ordinary world and like... I I got my answers. I got answered. I got I got healed there. Right. And I I feel like that exploration is is an extension, like a very natural extension of prayer and meditation, which we learn early on in 12 step mm-hmm. recovery, step 11. And you know, to think about it now, like my meditation practice, I don't know if I had the kind of traumatized brain that I could not meditate. I couldn't sit in silence. I couldn't do it mm-hmm. for 10 seconds, yeah. 30 seconds. I mean, five minutes was like... Yeah. I couldn't sleep without the TV on. Right. I couldn't... I mean, asking me to sit silent in silence for five minutes was like asking me to do brain surgery or to win a gold medal yeah. in the Olympics for fucking swimming or something, you know? So... But back then, somebody gave me a CD of guided meditations, and the person's voice was the right kind of voice. And but just starting there for me was Mm -hmm. where I had to start. And so to think starting there and now ending up here in buying a drum, like doing Mm -hmm. our own drumming for our shamanic Mm -hmm. stuff, and like Mm -hmm. all the corny hippie like middle aged stuff that we hated as young hipsters you know is now the shit that's like the most healing rewarding fulfilling stuff that we will take on you know on our lunch break from work we'll do a drum session in the it's just like a a meditation and a tuning it's just a tuning fork for whatever the ailment of that of that moment is. it reminds me that like this is just this this isn't everything yeah Right? Like what we see, like this plane is just this plane, but it's not the only one. And that, like, I think for people like us who have experienced like loss of loved ones, that is a very comforting Mm -hmm. belief, right? That this is just this. It's not everything. And Steve is gone and Kurt is gone and Ryan is gone. And, you know, we could make a 50 person list of people that we love who are not here anymore they're not here but they're not nowhere right which is not a very comforting thought yeah interestingly enough as you know earlier today i took this couple hour webinar about being a death doula and you know i started reading is it called the tibetan book of book of the dead yeah or dying or something yeah yeah tibetan book of dead or dying and the person who wrote the book was talking about how they lived there for a part of their life and then moved to the U.S. and realized just, like, how in denial and fear we are around death. And so we just mm-hmm. act like it's not going to happen, and we mm-hmm. kind of shun the people that it's happening to. And I've always been very fascinated and interested in 
people that sit in that space with people, you know, yeah. going through that situation. And I have had a personal experience several years ago with our dear friend Yvonne when her husband passed. I was I was there with them and mm-hmm. unexpectedly, not intentionally. Mm-hmm. And it just became kind of a fascinating process. And then that, of course, on top of all of the other kind of woo-woo stuff I feel like I've experienced and the woo-woo story about, I mean, your husband. I have a woo-woo story mm-hmm. about him. I just, you know, and I was having a conversation the other day with a friend of mine, and she said, what if it is just this, and then it's the end, and it's over? What if it isn't this other set of stuff, or energy doesn't go on, or whatever? And I said, whether it does or doesn't, I get comfort and fulfillment in believing that. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to just go with that. I'm willing to be wrong. Mm-hmm. But I want to live in the miracle. I want to live in like absolutely. I want to live in the connection that I feel, and the signs that I see, and the inspiration, and then just the the comfort and connection that I feel mm-hmm. to people that aren't physically here anymore. Yeah, and for for me, they're just I don't know. It just doesn't resonate as truth to me mm-hmm. that like this is it. Yeah, this is it. Like, how do we explain? There's a lot of things that would be. And whatever, like, I don't fault anybody who wants to believe anything, but I ask for the same respect, right? Like, I don't need a bunch of people to tell me that I'm wrong about how, you know, this is it, or and I, I'm not going to do that to anyone else either, but it just doesn't ring true in my body that, that mm-hmm. life means nothing, that it goes nowhere. That just doesn't seem true. Right. It just doesn't feel true. A couple of years ago, I was going through some really heavy stuff in my life, sober. And I was with my dear friend, Danny, who everyone will hear from soon, I'm sure. He'll be on the podcast. We had just eaten dinner in West Seattle. He lives in West Seattle. Sorry, Danny, if you're on the lam. Everyone knows where you live now. And we were standing out in the parking lot after we ate, and I was just looking up into the sky, like shaking my fist at the sky, like, what the fuck? What what does life mean? What's the meaning of life? And of course he's just laughing at me, basically, and just like, I don't I don't know that there really is one. And we're both just like he's laughing at me. I mean, I'm on the ver I'm having some sort like a legitimate existential crisis at that time in mm-hmm. my life. And between that time and now. I really have realized that the there really is no meaning. <laughs> I mean, but in a good way. The meaning mm-hmm. is love. The meaning is acceptance. The meaning is self-realization. The meaning is self-love. The meaning is yeah. being selfless. The meaning is connecting as human beings, having this experience that we're having in this in this avatar. You know, we're consciousness mm-hmm. just animating this avatar and that became that became comforting to me also because then I'm off the hook. I'm off the hook yeah, for having right. to make the right decision about right. where I'm going to live or what kind of car I'm going to drive right. or what kind of job right. I'm going to have or any of that bullshit. Like, I do believe none of that stuff matters. It really doesn't. Yeah. It matters that I'm that I'm honest and that I'm kind and that I'm loving and that I can accept love and that I can talk mm-hmm. about my truth and feel safe mm-hmm. and protected and that I can, the people who I love feel loved and they feel heard mm-hmm. and I can learn how to be a good listener and I can learn how to support people that are going through stuff that I've been through or whatever. So mm-hmm. the meaning of life, luckily, is, you know, it's not a competition. It's just trying to get to be the best version of this form that I can be in this 
incarnation. Mm-hmm. And then after that, who knows? It's, it's kind mm-hmm. of a crapshoot. It's a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. So however mm-hmm. it turns out after this, it's, of course, it, there's no way that my brain can even begin to comprehend whatever it's going to be. So I try yeah. not to think about it. I mean, there have been times in my life, especially newly sober, where I would think about death and I would become so overwhelmed with fear and terror that I would have to distract myself, turn the TV on, you know, walk around, go smoke a bunch of cigarettes or whatever. Like, I could not allow myself to think about it. And today I sat there for two hours listening to someone talk about how to hold space with someone while they're dying. And it was seemed totally normal to me. It seemed pretty cool, really. Well, I think, I mean... Plus, we're plus. I'm old now too, so it's you yeah, can't really we deny gotta, it. You can't deny reality yeah, for the rest. Gonna have to come to terms with it because <laughs> yeah. it is inevitable. I hope so, and, and for the sake of our kids, like I want my son to have a beautiful, peaceful, sacred experience. I don't want him to have to manage my fear and terror and my lack yeah, of preparation. Right. You know, right. in denial around it. Yeah, what I would say as an observer of of your life is that you're meant to be a healer. Hmm. And that moment with Danny, that shaking your fist at the sky was like a (laughs) transit point, right? From Mm. when it was like, when things shifted from like, I need healing to like, I am healing. And it you became an expression of care and concern for other people. Instead of like being focused on care and concern for yourself. Mm, funny how that works. Mm. Funny how that works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to learn this stuff to help other people. And then in that and process. That, yeah. Yeah. You get healed. You get healed. For sure. Yeah. Even just, you know, my recent experience doing this equine, you know, recovery support therapy. And even in just the first five, five or six sessions, learning so much about myself at 22 years sober, you know, at 54 years old of just like, wow, I have a f- some old ancient fear that's pretty fortified in here. I'm afraid of horses. I've been around horses my whole life, you know, and, and also that I'm, my, my posture and my physicality is I'm in fight or flight all the time. I'm holding my yeah. breath. My shoulders are yeah. up too high. And, you know, we learn this in Kundalini. We learn it in yoga. We learn it in some different aspects. But really standing in an arena with a horse and having my teacher, Christy, across the arena, take a breath, drop your shoulders. Just like, oh, my God. I just. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, like, below your conscious awareness. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm walking around flooded Right. You know, I just think this is how life is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just. I'm just jangled. And then just perpetually jangled. And then practicing it when I'm walking, you know, when I'm walking the dog, like, oh, my shoulders are up. Drop your shoulders. Take Mm -hmm. a breath. Take a breath. Take Mm -hmm. a breath. And now when we watch like my new binge is Cesar Milan dog training and then him trying to teach people how to be calm and confident. And the thing in my mind is Christy's voice, you know, in the arena. Mm -hmm. Drop your shoulders. Take a breath. Drop mm-hmm. your shoulders, take a breath, relax mm-hmm. your arm. You know, she says the same stuff to me that Caesar Milan says to people yeah, walking yeah, their dogs. Yeah, right. Because it's the conduit is the leash or the lead, yeah, and yeah. the animal picks up on that, and then they mirror that. They mirror that behavior. Well, people do too, and you don't need right. a lead, right? Like yeah. people respond to the energy that you bring into a room. My friend Mickey says, when a self-actualized person gets on a bus, they change the bus. 
right? right? Like yeah. that, the energy that you bring into a room is like critical. And I mean, we've all known those people who like, as soon as they come around, like you get tight. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to be that type of a person. I want people to feel mm-hmm. loved and comforted and, and vulnerable and safe, you know, not on guard. Right. And something that's become so valuable to me, and I just learned this, and, you know, a couple of years ago when I started doing training to become a certified peer support recovery person. And I mean, this, this is the God's honest truth. I'm not even exaggerating this to tell an interesting story, but I did not know how to listen. I didn't know how to listen to people. It's like if I... <laughs> I mean, without making myself sound like a psychopath or a sociopath, which I may have been at one point in my life, just, well, the, uh, here's the other piece of it. I lacked compassion for a really long time. I think it's just like in the second half of my sobriety that I've wanted to intentionally cultivate compassion. I didn't, you know, and again, I mean, that's, that's sociopath. So... Mm-hmm. Cultivating compassion and having like a genuine curiosity about other people's condition or state or spiritual condition. So I think those two things corresponding, like having authentic compassion, curiosity, and then listening. And so that stuff is fun is fun for me now it's mm-hmm. it's interesting for me to do and i get to do that so much in my work you know i get to facilitate these all recovery meetings and i get to support people one-on-one doing peer support in the job that i do and i get to i'm not saying i never talk too much or that i never become self-centered or talk about myself my just mundane boring details about myself but I can feel myself changing. And I do think a lot of it is from becoming, getting that peer support training and then also doing the job that I'm doing. So it's like the universe mm-hmm. put the, and you know, the, and the interventionist training that I got to do a couple years ago. And I, I would say that it happened before that, that you weren't trained to become that way, that you became that way and then sought out training. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I've just known you a long time, right? Like I think there was a, I don't know, white light spiritual experience that put some things in perspective and changed you. Right. That's very true to have that, you know, again, to have that tower card where your life just burns down Yeah, and you see that as like, Oh, okay. The universe is giving me the opportunity to get rid of this Mm -hmm. ego. That's just dragging me around and not, and I'm never going to, reach my highest potential as a human being yeah if i'm shackled to this false I mean, that, false that sense third of, step prayer that third step prayer is no joke no that, ain't right? no that joke. prayer yeah. comes with a warning label mm-hmm. because what you're asking is like remove everything that blocks me from god mm-hmm and when you say that, guess what? Things start going. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, <laughs> you know? I didn't mean, like, I didn't mean no, my Mercedes. Not the Mercedes. Not the Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> not the Mercedes. <laughs> no, no. Don't take that. I didn't mean that job. I didn't mean all my right. money. I didn't mean my right. ability to get a job. My, yeah. yeah, I didn't mean my self-respect. Yeah, I didn't mean my right. false mean, fucking sense yeah, of... My false self. Yeah, yeah. My, my false uh, sense of security, yeah. Right. My friend, some women that I work with, read with, we've been talking about how that third step is like 
shooting a deer with an arrow. And the deer is the false self. The deer is all the things that I think I am. And so we ask God to like shoot, to kill the deer. Like that's the prayer, kill the deer. And then our job is to follow along behind the deer as it's bleeding out and just waiting for it to die. And the the confusing part is that it's so much suffering. It's hard to watch the death of <laughs> yeah, self, yeah, right? It's yeah. so much suffering. And what happens, I think, is we confuse ourselves for the deer, right? Like, oh, I'm I'm dying. Yeah. I'm dying. Look, I lost my Mercedes. I'm mm-hmm. I'm dying. This is happening <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah. But we're watching the suffering of the false self dying, and we're the we're just there to witness and to honor and to like death doula that death of self. Right. And it's the answer to a prayer, but it's it's some graphic, grisly stuff sometimes. It's very graphic, yeah. And in my situation that the universe thought so beautifully, perfectly orchestrated that happening in my life at the same time that I was in these two relationships, romantic relationships back to back, that just annihilated me. So <laughs> I got to... <laughs> I got to get rid of a lot of old stuff and I really came out of those two things flattened, just flattened to, to the earth. Nothing, nothing left of me. And then I was given the grace and the support and the tools to look inward and to not look at those two just beautiful men Right. And continue right to point at them and say, it's yeah. them, it's them, it's them. They're an asshole. They're a narcissist. They're a whatever. Yeah. I've, I've it's, got the it's beauty. It's never them. I, I got the grace and the gift of it's time to investigate myself. And I started down that path. And I've never been more content. I mean, I've never yeah. been more sure I mean, that I'm a, going in the right direction. It just seems like a story of the phoenix or like redemption it totally is right? yeah just rebuilding just, a, just burn a away all life. the things yeah yeah okay am i out of the hot seat yeah yeah i think you're out of the hot seat you did pretty good <laughs> you're gonna let me tell you what's gonna happen next you're gonna walk around for a week feeling like you don't have any skin on and people are gonna say i love the podcast and you're gonna get a, a sinking feeling in your gut and <laughs> yeah what did, say? Say yeah. what did I say? Yeah. What did I say during the... Yeah, uh, you really showed your ass this time. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I, I understand what you've been going through the last two episodes with sharing that story. And I will say that it's been, you know, these these truths that we're telling ha- have ramifications on people that we love and that are very close to us. And, and it hopefully will afford us to have the conversations that we need to have with people that they still need to be had. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's a beautiful thing to face, mm-hmm. to face this stuff head on and to face it with an open heart and the people that need to come to us to reconcile anything from those times that we stand ready to do that with those people. I don't want to play. I don't want to be different people to different parties. Right. right. Like I want all the truth to be like compiled and to just be a part. Like I don't, 
and it's it's very close to true, right? Like I'm the same person at work than I am with you, right? Like we have that luxury of like I don't have to hide. Like we have coworkers who listen to our podcast, right? Like and and that's you know, I don't want to be a different person for different people. All of them, right? I want them all to have the same information. Yeah, and having like I can have really intimate, very exposing, disclosing conversations with my therapist, who I don't really know, except for Mm -hmm. that we do that one thing together. So then Mm -hmm. I ask myself, like, why is it so scary to have a conversation that intimate with my child or with my mom or or my brother or whatever? And then I come around full circle and think, I'm not. Yep. I'm not. I think I feel like I'm at a place where I would be willing to talk as honestly and and directly as I'm capable of in in the whatever moment that I'm in. And I, I mean, it's been practice, of course, multiple years of practice over time having these conversations. And we've been through the steps and been through amends, and we've had to confront ourselves and see the truth about ourselves in a lot of ways that isn't glamorous or complimentary. And having that be an acceptable part of the human experience because it just is so I think it's really neat and you know people have come to me that have listened to the podcast that are coming to the place around you know family systems or family dynamics or stuff that you talked about in your childhood and your family dynamic of the elephant in the room and no one talks about it and we don't learn how to talk about how we feel and all that stuff and this is just such a common occurrence for yeah. our generation but even some younger people have stated that they grew up like that too so it's not just us it's not ne- you're never the only person that something has happened to or that your family has gone through or i mean some situations are more unique than others but i just think this is I mean, I believe it's been our intention to open up this conversation, these conversations that we've been having around our house and in our kitchen mm-hmm. and with our and with our circle of, of like our inner circle of people that we talk to about this and to normalize this language and to normalize the the healing trauma down that's way down below mm-hmm. all of the other recovery and sobriety and mm-hmm. all of that stuff that just mm-hmm. the cracking down into that stuff and kind of being the elders that people can look to or talk to or or listen to and maybe a little ping of something will ring true in their heart Mm -hmm. of wow Mm -hmm. I have this heaviness in me and I'm in these terrible relationships and maybe maybe I have hope that I can change and that I can heal yeah I think we both have made a concerted effort like I want to get more vulnerable as I get older instead of less, Mm -hmm. right? I want to be more open and more fearless about who I am and how much I love you as I get older instead of hardening. You see it go both ways. You see it go both ways with, with people that are aging. And it's always really beautiful to see when you know a per like a person in your family or, or an old person who's aging and they become so soft and kind mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. different, more mm-hmm. in touch emotionally. But wouldn't it be great to be that, you know, to be as much of that now? Right. And from here on out, just continue to stay open to learning and changing and healing. And that's that's the beautiful thing. I mean, who would have dreamed 
when we were 25, 30, 35 years old, that we'd be sitting here at this age having these conversations and feeling this level of connectedness and yeah. this level of... I mean, I wouldn't have bet on us. New Horizons. I wouldn't have bet on us. <laughs> no, I wouldn't probably have bet on us. not, no. <laughs> <laughs> and really, really expand, you know, they talk in AA about expanding your spiritual life. And this yeah. is like large. It, it is my whole life. It is my it's life, large. My life is a spiritual life. Yeah. Right? It's not a separate thing. Right. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a fucking robot. Mm -mm. I'm actually I actually have feelings mm -hmm. that I can that are manageable. I can mm -hmm. regulate my I can regulate myself even when I'm in, in those moments of unregulated unmanageability. It's always fear, ego, whatever you've seen it. And I know I'm in it. Mm -hmm. It happened to me not that long ago and it was very familiar, but it was also very uncomfortable. Like any level of that is so unbearable now. Yeah, right. That it can't. That's it a, doesn't go on. Prayer. It doesn't go on for very long. It's that's very acute. Prayer. It's very mm -hmm. unbearable. I don't want to stay in that state. Yeah. Like, okay, how do, how do I get out of this? I know what this yeah. is. I'm just yeah. overwhelmed with self pity. I'm overwhelmed with fear right yeah. now. Right. Yeah, that's answered prayer because we used to be able to live there. <laughs> yeah. For years. Wallow in that shit. Right? Yeah. Forever. Yeah. 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 Now it's like a couple days. Yeah. It's terrible. It's very clear, very obvious. Yeah. Feels terrible. It does. Wow. Well, that was that was interesting. That was the hot seat. That was the hot seat. You that did was good. That was the hot seat. It feels it feels hot. It feels uh <laughs> it feels weird and you know, when I look back on that person, I don't know that person. It's what would you say? What would you say? The day you come home with a baby and you're dropped off by yourself, what would you tell yourself? What would you tell that girl now? You're enough. Your you're enough. And call your tribe. You have a tribe. Call those people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I did a fair amount. I mean, as much as I could, and I did, and we did back then. I think, you know, we had a group of friends, and I mm -hmm. mean, but we were kind of the first, <sighs> let me think. It's not like, you know, it's not like you have a fucking mommy and me group when you're a bunch of, no. you know, newly sober junkies no. trying to, you know, no. in N.A. But yeah. we had a group, we had a support group of women, yeah. and did as much as they could and, and as much as we could for each other. Mm-hmm. But I think that I was so, so shut down emotionally that any emotions were just too intense for me. And I just didn't think I had enough to offer him, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I just didn't think I was going to be able to. It wasn't even like the feeding or the bathing, like the logistical day-to-day -day stuff. It was just like, right. I don't have any emotional wisdom to give this person. I can't. I don't know how to. Somebody's going to start asking questions. Look at and, him, though. The proof is in the pudding. Yeah. He no. came out really well. Yeah. Yeah. He's just such an incredible human being. He's an incredible human being. But he had a bodhisattva. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. We all have that. We ha we all are enough. We have it in us. Like you said, we have to just clear away all of that stuff that's blocking us from mm -hmm. the source that's nourishing us. Mm 
to be able to give it to another person or dog or being, I guess. And I was I was so blocked. I I couldn't see inside myself that I had the resources to give. Mm. And I don't know that I would have even said that about myself and probably until pretty recently, you know, to to have that much faith and trust in myself and to just the knowing. Now that I know, now that I've cleared away enough of the stuff and I can see and I can see in there, I know that I had it all along and I know that everyone does. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of what's piled on top of it and how fortified yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like um, self-actualization isn't an additive process. It's a subtractive process. Mm. Right. It's about removing the things that aren't you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's corny, but but I talk about it with sponsees that like, and I don't know, maybe this is not a not real, but this is a fable of like when people ask Michelangelo, how did you carve the statue of David? He said, it was easy. I just removed the things that weren't David. I removed the stone that wasn't David. Right. And so that's to me is that's what we're doing here. Trying mm-hmm. to remove the things that aren't me. Yeah. Yeah. And in that process, I mean, it kind of happens simultaneously, removing the shit that's not you and also expanding the self that is you, the love, yeah, the heart, right. expanding yeah. your heart to be not shriveled up and dehydrated and yeah a in tiny the, in the black darkness. peppercorn yeah <laughs> tiny, tiny black, black peppercorn. peppercorn yeah putting some water on that and starting mm-hmm. that exploration of growing the heart and the love yep. and and all that stuff and kind of happens i feel like I it not, happens simultaneously I, I do not want a hard black peppercorn for my heart <laughs> <laughs> no that's how i've always that's how i always pictured my heart <laughs> and I and I think that there was a time in my life where I thought that's just all I was going to be, you know, that's mm-hmm. all that was going to be available for someone like me and that I was going to have to have a bunch of chemicals on board to to like bear the suffering of being me, being alive, mm-hmm. and that was yeah. just nowhere near the truth. And I just so I believe someone like me can recover. I know it's available to everyone and I know that mm-hmm. it's it's just sitting there. It's already in there. It's already mm-hmm. in there. And one of the mm-hmm. one of the things that I've loved the most about what you've ever said is when people are seeking that you don't look out and up or up and out. It's down and in. And I mm-hmm. and to me that's just the the perfect explanation of finding God, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're not like yeah. looking up in the clouds for an old white guy with a white beard. It's just right. like it's down and in. And it even says yeah. in the book like in yeah inside every man woman and child is the fundamental idea of god fundamental idea of god so you're saying what then it's in me or it's outside of me and so then i started thinking of just it's just air it's in me and Mm -hmm. outside me it's every single thing it's every atom it's every it's every thought it's every hair on your head it's every Mm -hmm. word you say Mm -hmm. it's every word you don't say Mm -hmm. it's every happening every happening good bad indifferent Right, God wrong. is either everything or he's nothing. Everything or nothing. Yeah, and I've just chosen to have it be everything because I want to mm-hmm. live in a world that's full of miracles. Yeah, It's just a too. more fun way to live. I've been in yeah. the dark side. I've lived in the yeah. darkness, and yeah. it's just way more fun to be in the light. Yeah. 
And once, I mean, my experience is when you believe that, you see it everywhere. Then it becomes the truth, yeah. It's the, I mean, I have so much evidence. A, a butterfly isn't just a butterfly landing on your shoe or whatever. It just, it, everything becomes something magic. It's a, mm-hmm. a Disney, yeah. Disney movie, except without all the ter- Less terrible Disney stuff. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tortured, dying parents and terrible stepmoms and a man has to come save you. Other than that, it's exactly like a Disney, <laughs> Disney movie. By the way, kudos on those fucking chocolate shits that you made. Oh, those cookies are good, right? So good. So salty. I know. And I not, put a lot of salt in them. And not too sweet. Like, just the, mm-hmm. and the perfect... I think Paul Hollywood would give you a handshake on this. Yes. Oh, that's what I want. Because the outside is a, cr- a tiny bit of crunch. Mm-hmm. The inside is a perfect sponge. It's not. Does the chocolate come through? It's not stodgy. The, ch- the salt comes through. <laughs> Which is what I want to <laughs> So on that note, I will see you in the kitchen in about yeah, let's 30 go seconds. Yeah, let a cookie. All right. I'll see <laughs> you right. in the kitchen. Okay, I'll see you in the kitchen. Okay, bye. Bye.